Alright, if you'll take your Bibles, please open them to the book of Hebrews, and again, the seventh chapter. We will turn to the same passage we've been working through. Hebrews chapter 7, we'll start reading again at verse 1. You join me in standing out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. Hebrews chapter 7, starting at verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the king who blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, being first translated king of righteousness, then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi, who received the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you give to us wisdom and understanding as we consider the relationship between the giver and the receiver. We ask God that you would help us understand your truth and that you would compel us to see our involvement in the kingdom work as the priority of our lives. Help us to walk in grace and faithfulness. Help us to teach all who come into contact with. And remind us, Father, that all the other things that we do are the side of it, but that we are kingdom people first and foremost. Amos Christ, because in his name we pray. So, we talked last week about the issue of privilege, about authority, and about how it is, is a thing given by God, this responsibility to lead, the responsibility to be his people. And I want to I want to consider kind of a, a subtopic of what that looks like. Because the broad sweep of this passage is how the giving of the tithe by Abraham to Melchizedek demonstrates the superiority of Christ over the priesthood of Levi. That's the broad sweep. And I'm not losing sight of that, I promise. But underneath that and in the middle of it is this idea that there is a relationship between the ones who give and the ones who receive. There is an agreement. There is a participation together um, as, as, we, as we partake of what the Lord has given. Um, that, that relationship is established between the gift which is given and the gift which is applied. And it's a nuanced relationship and it's worthy of some thought. Um, there is a privilege in being in the service of God. There's the privilege of being chosen by God, the privilege of being called out and being His elect. But that privilege involves also the call to service. It involves also the call to be kingdom-minded and kingdom-oriented in all that we do. There is um, this privilege in the service of direct occupation. So myself being you know, pastor, full-time employee, this is my focus. This is my, my world. This is my life. <clears throat> Others in that same way. But there's also the idea that as the church, you are 
the kingdom representation in this place. The ministry of the church belongs to you. My role is very specifically defined by Scripture. My role is to prepare and to equip you for the works of service, for the works of the ministry, which comprise the kingdom work of God in this place. And so there's a relationship between us that is about the kingdom more than it's about anything else. And our participation together in the work of the kingdom and in the gospel presentation is important for us to keep in mind in everything that we do. Now this is both in our service directly and in our participation in that labor through acts of giving and through the acts of your contribution to the kingdom work. And I, I want to make mention, I, I did speak of it last week, I meant to speak of it earlier as well, but if the Lord is laying on your heart to, um, to give a little extra support to the mission in Sichiachi, there is need right now, um, and I'm going to wire them whatever we've collected later on this week. So if you want to participate in that and uh, give some extra, please mark it, um, Casa Hogarth, on your check, put in an envelope and write Casa Hogarth on it, and then you'll get it to the right place. That, that, that's an aside. Um, what matters, though, is not how much you give or that you give, as much as it matters how you give. It matters what is the motivation of your heart, and it matters what is the motivation of your service as well. There is submission worked into the giving, not submission to the person, um, but submission unto him who is represented, and therefore submission to the kingdom, which is the ultimate goal of all. And this submission has to apply both to the gift and to the ones who receive the gift. It has to apply both to the giver and to the one who receives and to how the gift is applied. All of it is involved in submission to the will of God and submission to the kingdom as the priority of everything that we do. So this idea starts off with where we left off last week. And it's, it's the truth that privilege and authority rightly applied are acts of worship. Okay? When you submit to the authority of God and you recognize the privilege that is yours as his child and say, Lord, I want to fulfill my obligations as a part of the family of God. Family is everything. Family is the most important thing in your life, um, and it doesn't necessarily mean the family that you were born into, it means the family of God. It is what defines us, it is what shapes us. You will be closer to people who are children of God than you might be to your own blood relatives who are not. Amen. And that is good and true and right and proper. Jesus himself said that you will forsake father, son, mother, brother, daughter, all of those relationships for the sake of my name. And, and those it's not saying that you have to abandon everybody that you know, but where those relationships come into conflict with following after Christ, Christ gets the priority. We have to live that way. We have to honor him. We have to make certain that our lives reflect his glory. So... Using that privilege as belonging to him correctly becomes an act of worship. It is an act of submission to say, Lord, I want to follow after you. I want to take your word as my guide. I want to submit to your will. 
And I want to do whatever it is that you tell me to do, regardless of the consequences that I might fear or see in the world around me. And when you do that, acknowledging that you are privileged to know God and that you are privileged to serve Him. This is not a command which is leveled at you as some sort of whip to beat you with. This is a command birthed in the exquisitely, gloriously beautiful privilege of belonging to God. You are permitted to know Him. You are permitted to walk in the fullness of who He is. You are permitted wisdom. You are permitted grace. You are permitted glory. And you are permitted the opportunity to walk in that in the midst of this lost and dying world. This is a privilege. And that should be reflected in how you worship and in how you submit. Because our calling is first and foremost to aim others to God by how we submit to Him. Consider two possible scenarios. I have to do this thing for God. He's not going to let me get out of it. He's not going to let me escape. Let's just use me. I have to stand up here every week and declare to you the truth of God, even when it hurts. And believe me, every time I speak to you truth that I'm not living, it hurts. Every time I'm, I'm preparing a message and God shows me the blackness of my own heart and the places in my own life where my obedience is less than perfect, it hurts. But I still have to do it. So there's two ways that I can go about it. I can go about it grumblingly and complainingly and go, all right, miserable people, if you weren't here, I wouldn't have to do this. <laughs> Probably wouldn't help any of us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Bolt the door, quick! It wouldn't help anybody. Or I can go about it as I try to go about it, acknowledging what a gracious privilege it is to be allowed to declare to all of us the Word of God. And it is a privilege. It is something that God has called me to, and I am not worthy of. And I recognize His grace in my life, which permits me to do what I do. Now, all of you have that same opportunity. Not to stand up here, go find your own place. But to, to participate in the work of the kingdom with joy and with passion and with humility, knowing that God has given you a sphere of influence which nobody else can fill. And you can either declare his truth with anger and with animosity and with, with bitterness in your heart because you're being compelled to lay aside some things that your flesh might want to do. Or you can declare His truth with joy and humility knowing that you have been privileged to be called His child. Which one do you think is going to impact others more favorably towards God? Do you want to follow a God that I don't want to follow? If I'm telling you to go follow this God, but in the, the undercurrent is, I really don't like him. He's a harsh master. He's a man. He's a fool to me. I really wish I could escape, but I can't. If that's my message, do you want to follow that God? No. Not at all. So if you want to have an impact for the kingdom, your submission to God and, and understanding the privilege that it is to carry his message is going to inherently lead people towards Him. 
going to inherently show the beauty of the king whom we serve. Because if you're not in love with him, your message is not going to convey anything to anybody which is going to call them to love him. And maybe that's the cleanest way to put it. Your love for God must come out in how you submit to him. And your submission must be bathed in love. In everything that you do. We acknowledge his authority and we submit to his wisdom. And in what we do and how we do it, we declare the glory and the beauty of his wisdom over ours. I submit to his wisdom first and foremost because it is right. But if I don't communicate in that submission, then not only is it right, but I personally find it desirable, I lose all power in my message. I can acknowledge something is true and hate it. I have a friend of mine who often, <coughs> who will often say, today's another day I didn't use algebra. Because he resents the fact that he was forced to learn algebra in high school college, right? Has no bearing on his life. He despises the instruction. He despises all of it. He knows it's true, but he hates it. I would not want him for a math teacher. The person you want for a math teacher is the one who goes, can you imagine how cool it is that you can solve this equation? That's the guy you want. Beloved, when you're approaching people with the knowledge of Christ, if you're not infatuated with him, if you're not in love with him, if you are not over the moon for Jesus, it's going to come out in how you talk. It's going to come out in how you communicate. And what you're missing is a sense of the privilege that is yours in being his. It is a privilege. And it is a glorious, beautiful thing. In the end, when you get that right, you yourself will be blessed as you blessed others. Now, it is also true that having been called and privileged, you have been obligated. Okay? Look again at Hebrews 7. And I want you to see this dynamic at work. What we're talking about is the relationship specifically between Levi and the rest of Israel. Okay, we're going to pass over the connection for this week at least. I think for this week only. <laughs> we're going to pass over the connection between Melchizedek and Abraham. And we're going to skip into the second half of this because it flowed better out of what I was trying to say last week. And we're going to talk about the relationship between Levi and the rest of Israel. And specifically what, what sparked all of this is this idea. Verse 5 says, Indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi who received the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, their brethren, though they have all come from the loins of Abraham. So, there is a duty implied here. They have a commandment from God to receive the tithes. They have a commandment from God to exercise the authority that has been given to them, even though they are related closely to the rest of Israel. They all come from the loins of Abraham. They are all one family. And they see themselves as one big family. It's, it's just how it is. 
And, and yet, Levi has a commandment from God to exercise authority over the rest of Israel and to receive tithes from them. And that relationship would involve some tension. That relationship would involve some, some pressure, right? But in the end, that duty, like all duties that God gives to us, must be embraced rather than rebel against. Does that make sense? But I got loud and hurried. I'm not sure why. That, that duty must be embraced. It, it must be something that we say, Lord, I want to honor you. I want to follow you. I want to do what you have called me to do. And I want to be one who says yes. And I want to be one who says yes willingly. And this applies to our kingdom duties, but it also applies to all of our duties that face us in this life. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 24 says, Nothing is better for a man than that he should eat and drink and that his soul should enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw was from the hand of God. So when you do what God has put in front of you to do with joy and purpose and passion, you will receive good in your soul from the labor of your hands. You will receive good in your soul from the labor that you are engaging in for the sake of the kingdom of God. God will bless you in what you're doing when you do it with joy and purpose and passion. He's equipped you. He's prepared you. He's called you. He's privileged you to serve. And He calls you to walk in obedience to His commands in such a way that you demonstratively are delighted by the work that he has put in front of you to do. Man is made for work. Has been since before the fall. In the Garden of Eden, we were given jobs to do. To subdue the earth. To bring it into order. To take care of the garden. Those jobs existed before the fall. Work is not the result of the fall. Toil is the result of the fall. Work is not. It's a good thing. And if you don't have that right in your perspective in your earthly jobs, you're going to be miserable in them. And if you don't have that right in your perspective about your heavenly obligations to pursue the kingdom and to advance the glory of Christ, you're going to be miserable in that as well. You're going to see every single divine interruption or divine appointment, let me put it that way, as an interruption. You're going to see every single time God steps into your life and doesn't allow you to do what you wanted to do because he's prepared something for you to do, you're going to see it as a problem. And that's going to come over into your attitude. That make sense? It's going to shape how you go about doing what you're supposed to do. Now this applies to your service to your king. So it's worth thinking about. We demonstrate the greatness of the God that we serve when we demonstratively delight in serving the God who we know. That follow? Look, you, you see this in practice continually. You know people who have never found anything more delightful than their new fishing rod. Have never found anything more delightful than their new car. Have never found anything more exquisite than their new game controller or their new sound system or their new favorite movie or whatever it might be. And they are absolutely over the moon over this thing, whatever it is. And their passion is evident for all to see. Let me ask you the question. 
Is your passion for the work of your king evident for all to see? It should be. It should be the single most definable characteristic that you possess. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And Paul writes this. Chapter 2, starting in verse 10, he says, You are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. What was the charge that Paul gave them? That they would walk worthy of their God. But what was the motivation that he demonstrated? You saw how I did it. You saw how I walked in your midst. And you know how I continually was a song of one note exhorting you to do what you see me do for the singular motive of all of our lives that we be found worthy of the God that we belong to. That the privilege of being His would be evidenced in our lives. It changes how you engage with your responsibilities. If you view them as a burden or if you view them as a privilege. It changes the flavor of your engagement with them. You see, we demonstrate the greatness of the kingdom that we were advanced in. And we demonstrate that the kingdom is the manifestation of the kingdom. And that's an important point that we need to not lose sight of. The kingdom that we're advancing is the manifestation of Jesus Christ. It is the manifestation of his beauty and his glory and his love and his pity for us, his compassion, his willingness to die for our sin, to make us children of God. And all of this is wrapped up in how we view our kingdom labor. We need to never forget the debt that we owe Him and the fact that in the midst of everything that we're doing for Him, we can never come close to even scratching the surface of that debt. And that should shape our thinking. That should shape our prioritizing. That should shape our desires. That should shape our passions and our purpose. And it should shape the flavor of our lives. We demonstrate the extravagant gifts that He continues to give to us when we get this right. God is constantly providing for your needs. Do you recognize that truth? Some are going to say, well, I work hard for my money. Sure you do, but by whom do you get the ability to work hard? God. I've known a lot more than one construction worker who could lift and carry huge and heavy loads and missed months of work because they sneezed. Throw their back out and they can't move. By, by whom does that happen? By whom is that prevented? It's by the hand of God. You see, you do what you do because God permits you to. You have the ability to do what you do because God has provided both the desire, the knowledge, the skill, the opportunities, but He also continues to give you the 
the ability. We read Psalm 91 this morning, and it talks so much about how God is a shield for those who love Him. Now, it's not a blanket promise that if you honor God that there's never going to be any bad thing in your life. Don't take it that way. But every single good thing that God allows is a demonstration of His loving kindness and mercy. It's a demonstration of the fact that His desire is for you to love Him and serve Him because of who He is. So He's constantly showing you who He is. But we, stubborn people that we are, constantly refuse to see it and see only our own good and our own labor and our own desires. See, God calls us to keep in mind this relationship. That He's given to us privilege to participate. He's given to us opportunities to participate. And He continues to provide good gifts to His people. And He continues to provide good gifts to the church so that we might fulfill our collective obligation in this place. Does that make sense? As you participate in your obligation to support the work of the ministry, and I don't want this to be a message about tithing, so I'm, I'm not going to do that. I, I don't, those, those messages are not my heart and soul. I don't always want to talk about the tithe, but we're in this passage, so you're going to hear about the tithe a lot until we get out of this part of Hebrews chapter 7. So, bear with me. I'm not trying to beat anybody up. And let me just say very plainly and very openly, I don't know who gives what. I don't want to know. It's not my business. I never have known. I never know. I don't want to know. So please don't think that I'm speaking to you if you're not tithing or patting your back if you are. I don't know. My assumption is that everybody's doing what God tells them to do. And that's how I function. If you aren't, fix it. If you are, yay. Let's go on. <laughs> so here's the thing. When you participate in the support of the ministry, you actively participate in what God is doing in this place. You are contributing to that opportunity and ability for the church to function and fulfill its purpose. What is our purpose? Our purpose is to bring glory to God, to bring glory to Jesus Christ, and to advance the kingdom in Omega and in other places as he gives to us both calling and opportunity. We want to see the glory of Christ extended over the whole earth. And this little corner of the whole earth is the place where he has planted us. But we do not want to be narrow-minded and narrow-visioned. At some point, it may involve us planting another church in another place. I pray it does. It has been my heart for 25 years. God hasn't seen fit to do that, and that's his prerogative. But we have a purpose right here. We have a corner of the world that God has given to us. And let me speak frankly to us. We're failing. We're failing. We're not having as much of an impact in this community as we should. We need to step up our game. We need to recognize that God has positioned us in this place to advance the kingdom of God to declare the glory of Christ and to advance His influence over the people that God has put into our lives. That needs to be our priority, always. To do that, God has given us gifts. He has given us resources. He's given us financial resources. It's, it's absolutely inconceivable to me that a church this size maintains a full-time pastor. It shouldn't happen. 
It just shouldn't happen. But it has happened for 25 years, and God has continued to provide, and God has continued to be faithful, and the church has continued to go and to grow and to increase. That's cool. That's the mercy of God. He's provided. He has always provided. He will always continue to provide. And so in the end, we have been given the opportunity to declare His praises and to declare His glory and to declare His goodness by not only how we give to the church, but by how the church uses what's been given. But there's also the awareness that God has gifted this body with a multitude of talents and a multitude of abilities and a multitude of people who have very specific skills to do very specific things. And those things are all an opportunity for service to the kingdom. We just have to figure them out. We have to figure out what it is that God has equipped us to do and what He's calling us to do. We have to ask the question, Lord, what is the burden of my heart? What have you called me to do? What's that burning thing inside of me that I just want to do for the sake of Jesus? Because I promise you there's a way. I promise you there's a way. I don't know what they all are. I'm not that guy. But there is a way. There is a way for you to utilize what you've been given for the sake of the kingdom. And God demonstrates that by the fact that He is the one who places people in positions of service. He is the one who has called and equipped you to be the body in this place. And He is the one who has called and equipped you to be who you are. And in the end, the people that God has placed in positions of authority in this church are themselves a gift from God. God's placed me here. He's called me to be here. I'm a gift from God for you. That sounds really arrogant. I, I couldn't figure out a nicer way to put it. So I'm just going to say, Gene is a gift from God to this church. I'm going to pick on him. Amen. But, but, amen. But, but here's the heart of it. God himself provides what the body needs to function in the place where he's put it. Now, I'm not making this up. Turn you to Ephesians chapter 4. So in the relationship that the Levites had with the rest of Israel, the fact is the Levites were chosen to do their job. They were provided for Israel by God specifically. So Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 11, listen to how Paul describes this. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Until we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men, in the cunning craftiness of deceitful body. But speaking the truth in love, we may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself 
in love. You see that? God has given you teachers, elders, people who lead, for the purpose of equipping you so that you might fulfill the work of the ministry so that together, collectively, the body edifies itself in love. So that Christ is made head over all, sustaining everything, being glorified by all, being honored by all, and being demonstrated by how we serve Him in the capacity that He has placed us in. This is brought to the fore in the reality of how we, as the people of God, will honor and submit to God and will honor and submit to the positions of authority and the people that God has placed in them because of those positions. Now let me speak very clearly and directly to you. I do not have any authority over your life. I do not have the authority to say to you, you better not do that. I can tell you what the Word of God says. My authority begins and ends with the Word of God. But I do have a calling to speak that truth to you and to give what counsel I can see and understand from the Word and sometimes that counsel will be contrary to what you might want. And if I'm going to be faithful to my job, I have to give you that counsel. If you choose not to take it, I'm not going to hate you. I'm going to keep loving you and I'm going to keep speaking truth to you. And if you choose to leave, I'm not going to hate you. I'm going to keep loving you, and I'm going to speak truth to you as often as I can. It's what I'm called to do. In the end, our responsibility as the body of Christ is to submit to His authority, and to submit to His Word, and to submit to His truth, regardless of where it leads us. Regardless of how it looks to the world, regardless of how it might seem to us by human wisdom, we need to do what God says regardless. If you do that with a grumbling, embittered spirit, you're going to lose most of your effectiveness. that make sense? Amen. If you do that with a heart that says, yeah, I'll do it just because you're making me, well, you're going to miss it. You're going to lose your opportunity. You're going to lose a lot of the blessing. You're going to lose a lot of your effectiveness. And it's a lesson that God's going to have to come back around and teach you. And those are hard lessons. So, understand that that submission to God's gifts to you is a vital part of how we can honor Him in this. When Israel was commanded to bring the tithe, Israel was commanded to bring the tithe to the Levites. Now, they lived with these people. They knew these people. And perhaps some of them didn't like them. Perhaps there was some animosity. Perhaps there was some anger. Perhaps there was some, some upsetness because the Levites didn't farm and the Levites didn't produce anything. All the Levites did was run around doing the things that God told them to do. And the priests, being a subset of the Levites, were even more unproductive, if you want to look at it from the way of the world. I guarantee you there were some people in Israel who didn't like what they were required to do. God bless you. I guarantee you there were some people in Israel who were upset. 
doesn't change what God says we're called to do. It does, however, change relationships, and through the relationships, it changes our effectiveness. So what God commands us to do is to submit to this with with general joy and, and delight. Because in the end, we understand that God's purpose is always holy. What he calls you to give, whether it is time, money, skill, talent, influence, wisdom, whatever it might be. Whatever he calls you to give is to be used for the sake of the kingdom and towards a purpose that is holy and desirable. You may not necessarily agree with what God is telling people in the church that they're supposed to be doing. You may not agree with what God's telling me that I think the church ought to be doing. But we, we have to recognize that God's purposes stand. And, and the people that are given positions and, and the authority to lead have the authority and the responsibility to lead the church and to do the things that are there. Now, what this means, though, is that God's specific ground for use of a thing it not only is holy, but it makes it sacred. And it's sacred for as long as he is using it. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, the money itself is not a very sacred thing. It's no different than the money that stays in your bank account, except it's not in your bank account. Right? We don't have a temple exchange for a temple currency that's supposed to be holy. There's no difference in the money. The difference is in the purpose. The difference is in what it's being used for. That means then that it's a sacred thing when it's being put to a sacred use. The purpose to which it is set sanctifies it. And the value is in the use to which it is put. Now this, is, this becomes a problem for many churches today because they start to look at the money that has come in like it is the sacred cow. We gotta keep it. We gotta have it in the bank. We gotta make sure that we have it for a rainy day. Now, I'm not saying spend it down to nothing. I'm not talking about being foolish. But I am talking about the ideology which says that the church's goal is to amass a comfortable cushion of wealth. What does that do to our dependence upon God? Yes. It kind of eradicates it, doesn't it? If I think to myself, well, you know what, I don't really have to worry about lean times because the church has 12 years of expense money in the account, always. So what you're saying to me is it's going to be 12 years before you rely upon God. Amen? He could make it quicker, I think. He could make it a lot quicker. <laughs> Air conditioners blow up, roofs blow off, things happen, right? God could shorten that time if, he's, if he, yeah, trees could fall down and then again trees could fall down. God, God could shorten that time. Now again, I'm not talking about being foolish, but I'm talking about us understanding that God has given us what he has given us so that we might use it for the sake of the kingdom. So that we might advance the kingdom of God and see the glory of God move forward Look, as a church, God has continued to bless us. 
He has continued to give us His favor. And I want to make sure that we're being faithful to do what He's calling us to do. I want to make sure that we're being faithful with that money and with the talents that have been given to us. And so it means that we must use what He's given to us, not foolishly but purposefully, not wastefully but intentionally, and not fearfully or with reservations, but with joy and excitement about what God is permitting us to participate in. It, it may not be about money. It may be about doing. It may be about adjusting time and schedule and, and priorities in our own lives so that we are more focused on kingdom work here. Because God has given us great resources. He has provided us a great opportunity to advance the kingdom of God here in this place. So, the care which the church gives, not only to its own, but to the work, demonstrates the worth and the honor and the love of God. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians 9. Start reading in verse 6. This I said, He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly out of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. I'm going to read that again. God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. Why does God give us an abundance? For every good work. As it is written, he is dispersed abroad, he is given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, supply and multiply the seed that you have sown, and increase the fruits of your righteousness. While you are enriched in everything for all liberality, which causes thanksgiving through us to God. For the administration of this service not only supplies the <coughs> saints, but also is abounding through many thanksgivings to God. While through the proof of this ministry they glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ and for your liberal sharing with them and all men. And by their prayer for you, who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. So those who give are honored. Those who receive are honored. The gift itself is honored. And those who give must honor in their giving. You have to honor in how you give. Not grumbling, not complaining, not pretending or asserting or insinuating that those who serve ought not to be supported, and not pretending that they ought to have some sort of remaining control over what's being done. In the end, how we care for and how we lavish our love upon the service of the King matters. What we do, we do for His sake. Not for any other. What we do, we do because He is worthy of our whole heart. Now, 
This requires then some humility in those who are serving. <laughs> because what you receive, you have to receive with humility. You have to receive understanding that it's not about you. They must understand that God calls them to serve. I must understand that God calls me to serve and not to be served. God calls me to give myself for the sake of His kingdom, specifically for the sake of His body, where He has planted me and where He told me when I came that I came here to die. I'm here. I'm here by His call. And I'm here by His will. And in the end, I am here for the sake of His kingdom in this place. I'm not here to be served. I'm here to serve. And all of us have to understand that. Look at Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, in verse 25. Jesus speaking to His disciples who again are arguing about greatness and being first. And Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to be great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So that means that just as when you give, you are not to grumblingly give. When we receive, we are not to grumblingly receive. We're not to be embittered when I deserve more. I want a raise. Shouldn't be the heart. Shouldn't be the desire. We're not to receive grumblingly. We're not to receive grudgingly. We're not to pretend that God owes us something and we're not to refuse the care that's been given with some sort of pretentious false humility. Oh, no, 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 I don't need any. I don't need any help. I don't need any gifts. I don't need any. No, 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 right? A lot of times people do things like that because they know that the person who's trying to help them will press all the harder to say, no, no, really, you deserve, and, and that's really what they're after. They're after that puffing up. They're after that stroke me, stroke me. That's not how we're supposed to respond. If, if somebody's led to give, receive it with joy. If somebody's led to support you in a ministry that you're engaged in, as you take these words to heart and you start to look at how God wants you to serve the kingdom and your giftedness, and somebody says, look, I want to come alongside you. I can't do it, but I can give. Receive it with humility. Receive it with joy. Receive it with gratitude and understand that God has given them the ability to give and you therefore must be humble enough to refuse that care. It also means that you're not supposed to refuse to care for those who have been entrusted to a job and to the work which is committed to their care. So this both sides of the coin. If somebody's engaged in the ministry and God has provided you the opportunity to help and to support and to come alongside them in some way, then you have a responsibility to do that. When God brings these things to your attention, God brings these things to your mind, and God begins to show you how you can be engaged and involved in the work of the kingdom, you have a responsibility to do what He tells you to do. You have a responsibility to just come alongside and, and be a part of it. 
Not to live out our lives in fleshly indulgence and extravagance, and not to live in careless ruin, but to live with humility and grace to accomplish the work that God has entrusted to us. But this applies across the board to every single one of you. My calling is very specific. My calling is to equip you for the work of the ministry. That means that every one of you is going to have some form of ministry in the context of your life. You're going to have some form in which God is calling you to extend the kingdom by the gifts and abilities and talents and resources that he has entrusted to you. You might just sit down and start making a list of all the things that you can do. Because in the end, the Levites received a command to receive. Right? Back to Hebrews 7. The Levites received a command. Look again. I want you to see the word. It's a really strange sort of way for God to put it. But it's worth noting. Hebrews 7, verse 5. Those who are of the sons of Levi who received the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law. That is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. A commandment to receive tithes from the people. What made the difference between the Levites and the rest of Israel? <coughs> sovereign choice of God. Right? It's just God's will that he chose the tribe of Levi. The Levites were not better. They were not special in the sense that they were more talented or smarter. Why did God choose Levi? If we just look at scripture and say, oh, that makes sense. What, what, what do you see? Because God chose Moses. And Moses was a Levite. His brother Aaron was a Levite. And the priesthood came out of the line of Aaron. So that entire portion of all of Israel, because these are the people that God chose to do the job in Exodus, that entire portion of all of Israel came out as the tithe from Israel for God. They replaced the firstborn. He said, I will take Levi as, as a firstborn offering. And I will take all of Levi and the rest of you can keep your firstborn. You're not going to have to give your children up to my service. So God took the whole tribe but if you look at it and say, oh, I can't see why, it was because he'd already chosen Moses. So Moses was the vessel prepared and chosen for his use. And Levi came along for the ride. Okay? Those who have a commandment from God have a duty to fulfill. Now, you may not look at your talents and your gifts as a commandment from God. But I would float to you the idea that maybe you should. Maybe you should understand that what God has given you is really the form of a commandment for your life. Because God doesn't give gifts needlessly. He doesn't give gifts haphazardly. He has gifted you to your calling. He's gifted you to do the things that are in front of you to do. He's gifted you to be faithful in the context of your life 
and to obey his command. And those who have a commandment have an obligation to be content with the station that God has given. You might wish that your giftedness was something else. You might wish that your calling was something else. You might wish that you could do what somebody else has been called to do. Not have to shoulder your load. But each one of us will bear his own burden. And each one of us will fulfill the job that has been entrusted to us to fulfill. And each one of us has received a gifting from God and a calling from God to fulfill that job. It's the way he builds his body. It's the way he performs his work in a place. And those who have been given a commandment from God represent God as his ambassador. That's why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that we are ambassadors for Christ. Look, you're a specific ambassador to a specific point in time and place. You are the vessel that God has prepared to advance the kingdom in your sphere of influence. And you can look at that sphere of influence as a tiny little kingdom that God has placed you as ambassador into. You can look at that specific little kingdom as someplace that will not be reached apart from God's service through you. Beloved, this is the joy of God to involve us in His work. He doesn't even have to. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need any of us. But by His mercy and grace, He has privileged us to participate with Him in His work. Now for some, that's going to be merely the act of giving and praying and supporting. But for others, it's going to be a lot more hands-on involvement. There are, there are gifts that are supporting gifts, and there are gifts that are active on the front lines gifts. And Gene, being a student of military history, likes to tell me that for every soldier on the front line, there's how many hundreds supporting him? 63. 60% more. 60% more. A lot of people to support one person. In the end, we need to recognize that every single role that God gives matters. I don't know what you're giving this is. But if you spend a little bit of time thinking about it, God will show you. And if you think about it in the context of this calling to serve and calling to minister, you just might find that there's something that's been burning that you can't really get away from. Where God says, I really want you to do this. I've prepared you for it. I've equipped you for it. And nobody else is fit to do it because it's yours. It's made for you. What I know is this. The joy with which you <coughs> will be amplified into the joy with which you serve. And vice versa. The joy that you serve with will echo into the joy of your life. Because that is how God has designed the world to function. Gift and the giver served and the server. The kingdom is made up of all. 
And together, we bring glory to this Father, we ask that you give to us grace to understand these things, Father. And I pray that somehow you would bring clarity out of all of these many words. I pray, God, that you would allow that your truth would prevail in the end. And that your name would be made much and that your kingdom would be advanced. God, bring us to a place where we really begin to understand just how powerful and beautiful it is. That you, God, are making of us a people fit for your service, and that you, God, have prepared something for us to do. Let us be faithful. Let us live out that truth. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.